when you change the construction material, the whole process of design changes. Understanding those differences really entails a kind of paradigm shift in your mindset. Hello, and welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. I'm Alana Weston, chairman of Selfridges Group, and I believe that sustainability will be the next big disruptor of my industry. It must be placed at the heart of business strategy if we're to overcome the climate crisis and transition to a cleaner and more just economy. Through this podcast, we'll learn what it takes to make change happen. We'll hear from the transformers and the innovators, those who've taken existing companies and redesigned their business models, and those who've started something new. This week, I'm joined by the architect, Andrew Waugh. He's a founding partner of Waugh Thistleton Architects, a company committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and design. He's led the practice on award-winning schemes from synagogues to social housing and was an early pioneer in the architectural quest for tall timber buildings. He teaches and lectures on timber construction, sustainability, and the future of architecture. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you very much, Alana. So, Andrew, tell me a bit about your personal connection with sustainability. You know, I grew up in Milton Keynes in the 70s and the 80s, like a new town. And there was a feeling of, of an opportunity to kind of like do things differently. And there was a lot of talk around sustainability. And I think that even though at the time, as a kind of rebellious teenager, it was something that I kind of completely rejected. But as I've had kids, as I kind of progressed through my career, thinking about what's important, what really is the kind of legacy that you want to leave. So it wasn't an epiphany. I don't think it's just been a kind of gradual sort of awakening or awareness. And how did you get into the idea of wooden buildings? Was there a client that asked the question or how did you begin to be interested and what was the first job that you did? I started my practice with my business partner, Anthony, straight out of college. And we didn't really work for anybody else. And we didn't really know how to build. <laughs> so we were taking it really from basics. And we both worked as model makers. And there was something about construction that we understood through making models. And so we were really interested in taking that understanding and thinking about prefabrication. And then we came across these big solid timber panels that were made in Austria that, that were cut into the precise shapes that you needed and then craned into place. And so we had this little job for, I mean, the craziest little job. It was a private members club for classical musicians. And you know, I think one of the things that gave us the confidence to do it is because they actually, there was an understanding of a kind of fellow specialist you know, the yes. guy was a, was a virtuoso violinist and he was like, nobody questions me about my violin playing. I would never question you about your architecture. And your, so, we, you know, we built this beautiful little building about 40 square meters on a Saturday afternoon. And it was just a wonderful experience. And so it just went from there, really. I love the idea of something small and perfectly formed, almost like a violin <laughs> and, and made out of wood. I love that image. But then until very recently, the tall glass and steel building has been the sort of epitome of what mm. architecture can be. 
How is that changing and how throughout your career have you seen a shift and has that accelerated more recently as we really face into the climate crisis? I'd love to say yes, <laughs> but um, there is this, still this fascination with these big kind of glass office buildings and we need to change. You know, we need to completely shift away from that and, and reimagine architecture and also what success looks like. There is this kind of notion that it's kind of like perfect buildings, never show any age, never show any patina. That is success. And we need to move away from that and find a new version of success. I think it's very interesting. And I often wonder, I mean, it's it's easy to label things, but I often wonder, is that a Western thing? You know, you think about a Japanese idea of, of wabi-sabi, or mm-hmm. you think about other cultures where something more intimate is prized. And um, and then I, I do actually sometimes wonder if there is a sort of male element to this very tall, you know, <laughs> buildings. Yeah. And if we had more women in architecture, we'd end up with something that explored density in a different way. Are there any themes that you've found throughout your career that are cultural as, as much as business-led? Definitely. I think the sort of the modernism that I was referring to before is it's a Western world, a European and a North American kind of fascination. We've done some work with Shigeru Ban, a Japanese architect, and that's been really interesting. For me, at least, kind of being able to reframe notions of what's important about architecture, what's important about spaces. So I've learned a lot from him, certainly. And I think, you know, going back to your kind of point about gender, I think, sadly, you're absolutely right. But I think that is also one thing that has definitely got better over my career. I mean, you've said one day concrete and steel will be the same as oil and gas. Mm. And I thought that was a pretty powerful statement. Um, Can you tell me why? Primarily at the moment, because the massive amounts of carbon that are emitted by uh, the production of cement and concrete and steel, how carbon intensive those processes are, and also the process of construction with those materials as well. They're incredibly heavy. They require an awful lot of machinery, etc. So I think that, you know, to be able to move forward to a low carbon future, we need to be building in different materials. But more than that as well, I think it's also the extractive nature of those materials. You know that we're digging those up from the surface of our planet. And we need to be thinking about materials that are replenishable, materials that you can grow, and materials that you can recycle. So I think concrete particularly is something that we need to lose our dependency upon. Steel, we need to learn how to make sure that we just use the steel that we've got already. I love the idea of of a complete system change in terms of how buildings are constructed. And can you talk a little bit about how the whole system needs to change in terms of the design process, the engineering, and right through to how the building's constructed? When you change the construction material, It's not like you kind of take out concrete and steel and you just replace it with timber. It's actually the whole, as you're alluding to, the whole process of design changes, the whole process of construction changes. So we need to think about buildings that are much lighter. So as soon as you're building a building that weighs a fifth of the buildings that you're used to building, then you have kind of issues around how do they work in the wind? Does the floor bounce or vibrate when you walk on it? You know, all those sorts of things because they're so much lighter. So understanding those issues, understanding the engineering behind those issues, then understanding the differences in the construction process 
really entails a kind of paradigm shift in your mindset toward designing and building with something different. And it's been really exciting. And a lot of people don't know that timber structures are actually quicker, cheaper, lighter, slimmer. They're also quieter and cleaner to build. And they improve our well-being. And then, of course, there's this idea that they're made from a renewable resource that actually takes carbon out of the air as it grows. It seems like a miracle material. And yet a remarkably small percentage of buildings are constructed in this way. What are people worried about? Is it fire risk? Is it the access to the raw material? Or are there other things that you think are holding back change? The industry is quite kind of set in its ways. <laughs> We've been building in the same way for a hundred years. And I think that they're kind of very set relationships between contractors and developers and planners and architects, engineers. These are very set in their ways. And in order to get the efficiencies from timber that we know that we can achieve, a lot of these relationships need to be reinvestigated. And then you have these issues around perceptions and fire and water and people are very worried about those things. And they're absolutely right to be so as well. But the more that we research into how large pieces of timber behave under fire, the more that we understand its capabilities and its capacities. And I live in a timber house myself, so I'm kind of, you know, well aware of those sorts of issues. And what about the well-being aspect of living with timber? Have you done any research into that? Yeah, we're doing research into that at the moment. And it's a fascinating topic because what we're beginning to understand is that actually people who live in timber buildings, who live kind of surrounded by natural materials, have lower heart rates, they have lower stress levels, they have better productivity, better concentration, they sleep better. I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise because we know that with other things in our life that kind of, you know, if we're surrounded by plastic, if we wear too much nylon or kind of, they don't really work with our body. With timber, with natural materials, you're getting kind of natural levels of humidity, better acoustic. I think it's just a more suitable environment for a human to exist. It makes so much sense to me. And you, I think the acoustic part and stress levels, you can just feel it when you go somewhere where it has good levels of acoustic and often there would. And so what's the most difficult part about working with material that's considered quite innovative? It is difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's exciting, but it is difficult. And sometimes, you know, I feel like a bit of a timber salesman, which I definitely don't want to be. I don't want to come across because, you know, for us kind of building in wood is the answer. It's not the question, if you like, you know, the question is about sustainability, about reducing carbon, etc. But I think in terms of, you know, changing people's minds and kind of changing people's perceptions, it really is about being open, having lots of discussions, being very collaborative, including everybody that you're working with, not only in the construction process, but in the design process as well. I'm married to an architect, and I don't think there's any profession that has to orchestrate quite so many different stakeholders in one project, from, from the client, the engineers, the planners, building control, all the trades. I mean, you have to be a sort of a lawyer, an artist, and a psychotherapist all rolled up into one. And then you add in sustainability, and it's a pretty challenging 
mix? I mean, how do you <laughs> how do you win the hearts and minds of all of those people as you go? It's about passion and it is about kind of, I think, leading from the front. Like I just said to you, you know, I live in a timber house. We're trying to bring people with us. This is not a kind of lone journey on our own. Architects need clients. Architects need contractors. There's no choice. You're part of a system, you know, and changing that system, you need to bring everybody with you. And can you tell us a story of a process that you've really enjoyed where where the client really understood what you were trying to do or or where people that hadn't maybe worked with Timber before kind of had that sort of aha moment where they go, okay, I think this is going to work. The building that I live in, I built it with two of my best friends and we all live side by side in a row, three apartments in a row. And there was quite a leap of faith from those people. And I remember the day, well, kind of goose pimply actually, but I remember the day when the timber first arrived on site, you know, when it was being all craned in and suddenly from this kind of vacant lot, this kind of beautiful sort of timber structure was emerging. And being there with my family, my daughters, with my wife and with my friends and looking at this and them all looking around at me thinking, okay, okay, (laughs) this is what you're talking about. Do you think there's a risk that the clients and architects that don't understand these new methods are disrupted? I don't think so. I mean, I haven't experienced that. I think that there is a real understanding across the industry that there needs to be change. You know, and I think that that change hasn't been satisfying. It's actually been kind of carry on as normal, but put some more insulation in the walls, put a solar panel on the roof. I don't think that's ever felt like a viable enough level of change. And I think that actually rethinking the way that we build things, rethinking our values about architecture, I think is incredibly infectious. And we see so much interest. 10, 15 years ago, friends of mine from college would kind of invite me around and they'd say, come over, but for goodness sake, please don't bang on about timber again. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't get that anymore. I don't get that. You know, I get friends phoning up going like, hey, I think we might be able to get a timber building through. Can you come do a kind of talk at the office or can you share some details or experiences? So I'm really optimistic. I think I can see some real time for change. I think it sounds really exciting. And what about the relationship with nature then? I mean, can we plant enough trees? If we're all tomorrow, say after COP, every builder had to build out of wood, are there going to be enough trees planted to supply that much building? For starters, we need to stop burning trees. You know, in Europe, in North America, across the world, we burn more than 50% of the timber that's cut down. And that's crazy. In the UK, we subsidize the burning of timber as a replenishable energy source. That's just crazy. You know, we should be using this valuable resource to build our buildings. And these buildings, they don't take an awful lot of timber to build. So my understanding from all the research that's been done is that this isn't a problem. We do need to plant more trees. We need to plant more trees for the sake of our planet, as well as for the kind of future of construction. And also there's ways of planting trees that will create incredible habitat for biodiversity. And and we don't have to have these solid spruce plantations. No, these massive monocultures. I mean, the level of certification across Europe now for, for tree growing, for managed sustainable forestry is really great. And um, as an office, we've been into the Austrian Alps and met with lumberjacks and been to sawmills. And, you know, we know our supply chain well. And 
I'm confident, I'm assured that the way in which these trees are cut down and regrown really takes care of those kind of biodiversity issues. So tell me a bit about what you're working on now and what in your wildest dreams would you be working on in the future? Honestly, the jobs that we're working on, we're so lucky. I mean, they're like college projects, you know. <laughs> We've got a big housing project in Barcelona, another one in, in Bow in East London. We've got an office building in Milan. We've got, I mean, one job that we're doing is incredible, which is a sort of a semi-floating city on a lake in Norway using local timber from the forest and for the foundations we're using rubble which has been blasted from the rock for a new kind of like transport system and we're making these kind of foundations that actually are good for oysters so there are oyster beds in the foundations that will help clean the lake you know those sorts of kind of regenerative projects at scale I think are incredibly fascinating and, and exciting. Well that sounds like an incredible future for architecture hmm. and for people. Tell me what do you think are the most important leadership skills for winning over the industry and for running these projects that are very, very innovative? I think that you need to lead from the front. You need to be at the meetings, on the construction sites as much as you can. You need to know the detail. You need to understand what you're talking about. And I think you need to be inclusive. As I was saying before, it's just like, bring everybody with you. And actually, I'm finding this as I go through these podcast interviews that each individual that I meet has a singular passion for Mm. what they do. And the energy that you derive from that is just infectious. And and are you starting to see more diverse people coming into architecture from more diverse backgrounds? Slowly, very slowly. It's been difficult with the students having to pay their own fees because it's such a long course and it's not the best paid profession either. So, you know, it's a lot of money to repay at the end of your course. And I think, unfortunately, sadly, that has kind of thwarted an improvement that was underway. So, you know, we work hard to reach out to those students, but it's difficult and it's not the diverse kind of place it should be. Yeah, there's lots more to do there. This has been great. And now I'd like to ask you our quick fire round question. <laughs> okay. So what's your definition of sustainability? Touch the ground lightly. I love that. I've always loved that phrase. That's wonderful. And is there such a thing as sustainable growth? We need to grow into a different way of doing things. So I can see growth in that sense. I think growth for growth's sake is something that we just can't sustain as a planet. Yeah. And what's most important, customer demand, legislation or innovation? I mean, for me right now, legislation, because I have the demand from customers. We are innovating all over the world, but we need government support. And in the UK, that's pretty poor, unfortunately, compared to other countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. Who will help us reach our climate goals fastest? The disruptors who bring us brand new products and innovation or the transformers who are changing the focus of existing business. I suspect the transformers. I suspect the people that can actually envisage doing things completely differently. And what three things are you hoping will come out of COP26? I'm optimistic for COP26. You know, I think Biden has been amazing. And I think that he's 
showing real leadership. This time I see industry, I see society driving legislation. Whereas before I think the cops had always been relatively remote in terms of what they were doing, I feel that this is a cop which has a lot more kind of public agency. And what three things are essential to leading a sustainable business? You have to come to terms with the fact that you probably won't make very much money. (laughs) (laughs) I think that you have to listen and kind of question yourself quite a lot. Pushing Mm -hmm. yourself is really important. Mm -hmm. Watching the journeys of others is encouraging and inspiring. Andrew Waugh, thank you so much for coming on How to Lead a Sustainable Business. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do take a moment to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Intelligence Squared. It was edited by Debbie Kilbride with technical assistance from Mark Roberts. The executive producer was Farah Jasset. I'm Alana Weston, and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business.